So let's, let's remind ourselves where, we're, where we've been and where we are in the book of Micah. So basically, as we're starting chapter 5, the first three chapters of the book were all about God laying out for His people, the people in Israel and Judah. Remember, we've got a, a divided kingdom now, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and Mike is addressing all of them, but he's speaking into Judah specifically. He's in Judah. He's in Jerusalem. That's the capital of Judah. And, and this, the first three chapters are this declaration of sin and judgment. So God is calling them out for uh, their, their, uh, their greed, their oppression, the injustice that they're guilty of, their idolatry ultimately, that they have, they have basically looked like the pagan world around them. They've abandoned God for false gods, and it's created in them this awful social condition. Things are bad socially. Things are bad spiritually. They're not bad necessarily economically. They're doing quite well, at least some of them. But those who are are oppressing those who are not. So it's just a, it's a messy situation, and God is speaking not only to identify their sin, but to pronounce judgment upon it, consequences upon it. And of course, the consequence then is that they're going to be overcome by those, those, the pagan world around them that they wanted so desperately to look like is going to consume them. They're going to be conquered. They're going to be exiled by the superpowers of Assyria and Babylon. We get to chapter 4 after hearing all of this very heavy you know, condemnation and all this heavy pronouncement of sin and judgment. And we get a promise of God's faithfulness to them even in the midst of their sin. Even in the midst of, of the consequence that He will unfold, there's a promise there of restoration. It's a look to the future. And it's a reminder that His covenant promises with them are not broken, will not be broken. Even though they're going to be judged for their sin, God will restore and redeem and bring them back. He won't leave or forsake His people. And now we get to chapter 5, and we're looking at the restorer. So chapter 4 is about the restoration that's coming. Chapter 5 is really a look at the one who will do the restoring. And uh, it's, a, it's a very familiar passage. Uh, you'll, you'll all find it familiar, especially as you're already thinking about Christmas, because it's a passage that we read at Christmas every year. But what I want us to do is, is really this. I think today is just a great day to sort of park and focus on Jesus as the one who restores broken people. Like you, like me. I, I, uh, you know, this week as I've been preparing this message, I've been really encouraged by the passage and I've been thinking a lot about uh, just conversations that I've had with many of you and, and ways in which you're feeling broken, ways in which you're feeling discouraged, ways in which you're, you're questioning you know, where is God in the midst of this? And I, I was really encouraged as I was, as I was just soaking in the goodness of God and the, the glory of Jesus and really feeling like I had something, I wanted to have something to encourage you with this morning. What I had no idea was uh, at the time earlier this week how much I would need this message myself. <laughs> this weekend I kind of found out, so I won't go into that, but I'm just saying, like, I need this too. We need to just sit sometimes and just marvel at the goodness of Christ and the glory of Christ. And so that's what this morning is, is really all about. If you're a Christian this morning, this is a message that should encourage you. 
about the rescuing and, and, and the sustaining relationship that you have with Christ. And I know that Micah, again, has been mostly unfamiliar to most of you as we've gone through it. This is not a book you probably read very often, but I know you know this passage because, again, we read it every Christmas. So look, look down with me at chapter 5. Let's read the first five verses. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We're going to examine three truths about the, the love of God this morning. The love of God towards us in Christ that are, are, I think, really beautifully pictured in these verses. And then in a few minutes, we're also going to be taking communion together. And so I, I really think that this passage will set us up to do that in a way that's truly meaningful and worshipful and encouraging. And I want to pray to that end. So Lord, would You speak to Your people? Would You encourage us would you point us to your Son in a way that just swells up our hearts in gratitude, in love, in hope, and in joy, even as we come before this table and we remember Him this morning. Lord, drill that into us in a good way. Make us full in Him. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want us to see this morning is this encouragement. It's that God sees us in our weakest moments. God sees us in our weakest moments when our strength fails. And that's what we see in verse 1. Uh, let me explain. So again, we, we've got this, this reassuring look to the future that chapter 4 has been all about. Right? Look forward to this day. In that day, in that day, God's going God's to bring it all back. He's going to restore it all. And, and then you get to chapter 5. In this first verse, there's sort of this vacuum that just sucks us right out of that 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 future and that, that glorious look and just pulls you right back into the present, right? But, get ready, Judah. Get ready, residents of Jerusalem. Things are bleak now, right? Things are bleak. The Assyrians are coming. They're going to lay siege to your city. They're going to lay siege to Jerusalem. Now, I know we've talked about the Assyrians and the Babylonian empires uh, quite a bit. I've, I've just talked about them in, in terms of them being the dominant superpowers of the day. But we haven't really discussed what they were, what they were really like. What was life like under the, you know, the rule of Assyrian and Babylonian empire, especially if you were a conquered entity, you were a conquered nation? Uh, it was actually quite, quite scary. 
And most scholars believe that the the first verse here of chapter 5 was a prophetic reference to the invasion of Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, into Judah right around the year 700 B.C., which happened just a few years after this prophecy was given. So this verse 1 is this get ready, this is about to happen. And it, and it really did happen just a few years later. And so this warning would have been scary for again the residents of Jerusalem. Sennacherib and his army were well known not just for being virtually impossible to stop. Again, they were the dominant military force. They were virtually impossible to stop. But also they were well known for being especially brutal. So Sennacherib's men would not only capture opposing soldiers, but when captured, they would routinely cut off their arms or cut off their lips or cut off their ears. They would burn them alive. Or they would sometimes take captured soldiers and impale them on posts along the roadway, sort of like like we would drive down Lakeshore Drive and, and see you know streetlight posts, just post after post of conquered soldiers as this monument to Assyrian victory and Assyrian dominance. So it was a particularly horrifying thing to be the target of an Assyrian invasion. And the people of Jerusalem knew that. So to be reminded that, get ready, this is about to happen to you, would have been a horrifying moment. And they watched in terror as Sennacherib's army systematically conquered the cities around them. They just kind of were closing in, closing in. They came into Judah and they were successfully wiping out all of these villages and towns and cities right up to the gate of Jerusalem itself. Now, Sennacherib and his forces won't capture the city this time. They won't capture Jerusalem. But they will leave them humbled and humiliated. And you can read about that account, and I, I would encourage you to read it in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Now, let me explain a little bit what I mean by humbled and humiliated, because I actually titled the sermon uh, with those two words. And, and I know for, you know, maybe you think, well, those two words are just synonyms, right? They just mean the same thing. Well, not necessarily, and not in the way that I wanted to use them, not in the way that I see the people experiencing those two realities here in the text. To be humbled is to be uh, brought low, right? To be humbled is to, to be from a position of strength and all of a sudden find that you're in a position of weakness and that's very humbling, right? To be humiliated is sort of one step beyond that. It's in that process of being brought low that you're also made to be very ashamed. It's that slap across the face as you're being brought low. And that's exactly what was experienced by the people of Jerusalem when the Assyrian army rolled up to their gates. Archaeologists have found a written Assyrian record that contains a very boastful account of Sennacherib's destruction of Judah uh, in 701 B.C. So again, he's rolling through the country and he's conquering everybody right up to the gates of Jerusalem. And this inscription, which, which happened just a few years later, they dated around 691 B.C., The account says this in part. 46 of Hezekiah's strong-walled towns and innumerable smaller villages I besieged and conquered. So Hezekiah is the king of Judah. He's in Jerusalem. And Sennacherib's account is saying, I took 46 of his cities. That's mass destruction, right? 
And as for Hezekiah, the awful splendor of my lordship overwhelmed him. They sat outside the the city walls, his army, and they mocked and they taunted. And they told the people, don't listen to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to tell you to trust in God. Why would you do that? Have you seen what we've done to every other city when their king told them to trust in him or to trust in their God? This is, this is in vain. This is futile. There was just a slap of the face. And it's times like that when it's easy to ask this question, God, are you here? Right? God, are you aware? God, do you care? You know, last week's sermon um, was interesting. I, I, I sometimes get feedback from sermons, and it's usually, usually uh, I either walk away feeling like, okay, like that, that was the way I intended that sermon to come across. I feel for, kind of good about the sermon. Sometimes I walk away feeling not, like that sermon was a miss, and I felt that way last Sunday. And, and then this week, I got probably more response to the sermon than I, I've ever gotten. Several people, many people, talking to me about how that the message from last week really impacted them. And I think one of the, the key ways that it did was, was meeting them in this reality that they're asking this question often, like, God, are you present? Right? Do I feel like I, I sense in, in my trials and in my sufferings and, and in the consequences of my sin? I mean, the point of the message last week was, was that God, God works in those moments. He, he brings us to those moments because that's where He meets us and works in that. And, and, and I think it's easy for us to believe very often that I don't see that. And I heard that a lot this week. And, I, and it makes me think about what the people here would be would be experiencing as as you know they're just watching destruction roll up at their doorstep and they're wondering god are you here do you see this but here's what this verse tells us here's what this verse tells us god sees us in our times of weakness why else this verse in the middle of this glorious depiction of restoration and right before this picture of what the restorer is going to look like and, and what he's going to do? Why this, this stark reminder, this sucking you back to where you are right now where things are bleak and you're looking around and you can say, this looks terrible. Remember, this is God telling them about what was going to happen before it happens. And I think this is God's way of saying to them, I see it. I know it. And it's not just a, a know it like, yeah, I know. You know, like if you, if you were to, to, to walk up to somebody you know and say, how are you doing? And they were to say to you, you know, oh, I was actually, I was in the hospital last week. And, and you were like, oh, yeah, I knew that. And how would they feel? Like, oh, okay, you, oh, you knew that. Okay, great. No, it's, it's more like that, yeah, I knew and I, I came, and I prayed over you, and I, I saw you as you were sleeping there in that bed, and I, and I brought food to your family because I knew that they, they needed help when you were laid up. Like, I knew. That's a, it's a different kind of knew, right? And a different kind of see than just, yeah, I knew. God doesn't just know. He's not just all-knowing. 
He's intimately knowing. And in that intimacy, He's sympathetic to our weakness. Think about what we're told in in Scripture. Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. And even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. Psalm 139, O Lord, You have searched me and You know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. And You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. And such knowledge, I love this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God is not distant in our times of trouble. God is not distant this morning for you in your time of trouble in your time of fear, in your time of doubt, in your time of worry and anxiety, He is not distant. He sees it. He knows it. And He acts. That's the second thing. Now that we know that He sees us, we're told that Jesus then meets us in our weakness. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This is such an interesting verse. Why Bethlehem? That's, that's the big question that we ought to be asking. So we get this, we get this promise that, okay, a ruler's coming, but we're, we're told that he's going to be coming from Bethlehem Ephrathah, which, by the way, is just two ways of saying the same thing, Right? Uh, Bethlehem and Ephrathah are, are, Bethlehem means house of bread, and, and uh, Ephrathah means fruitful, but they're just two names for the, the village. Kind of like saying Chicago, the windy city. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Why this place? Well, you can say, well, we can look back, and, and, and the people of Micah this day, they could look back as well and recall that King David was from Bethlehem. And if we remember the promises of God to David in 2 Samuel 7, we would know that that a messianic promise was given there, was given to David, that David's family line, that David's throne would be established by God forever. And so we might say, ah, of course. Of course this ruler is going to come from Bethlehem. That's that's the place where, where the Messiah has to come from. That's the place where King David came from. And if we were to say that and think that, we'd, we'd be right, but we'd be missing the point of this passage altogether. The idea here is not to say, Bethlehem, from you, of course from you, will be the one, will be this ruler who comes. But the idea is to say, Bethlehem? 
This, this, this place that's, that's too little to be named among the clans of Judah. It is, the, it is an insignificant place. That's the point. Bethlehem is not chosen because it's the city of King David. It's chosen because it's the tiny, unassuming, and unsuspected village of shepherd boy David. Nobody expected the king, even with David, to come out of Bethlehem. The Messiah is born there because of its weakness. That's the point. John Piper would say, God is not constrained by human worth, dignity, achievement, or status. He doesn't doesn't pick places that are known for achievement and status and worth and dignity, right? He's not constrained by that. He is completely free to meet us in our weakness. He's completely free to say, not the loop, Inglewood, that's where I'm coming, right? Not Jerusalem, Bethlehem. First Corinthians 1 reminds us of this truth of God. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He comes to us in our darkest hour and reminds us that He made a promise to us to save us in a way that would preclude our own boasting. So if you're in a weak place this morning, can I just tell you this? You're in a good place. If you're in a weak place, you are in a good place. This is not only right where the Lord sees you, this is where He desires to meet you. Listen to this. I, I don't want to over-allegorize the Bible, but I, I do remember that, that Paul says twice to us, and he says it in Romans 15, he says it in 1 Corinthians 10, basically this, whatever was written in former days, so whatever we look back and we see in Scripture, we, we say these are, these are historical events that actually happened. They happened to God's people, right? And he says whatever we see written about these former days was written for our instruction. They happened, but they were written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So I think about King Hezekiah. And I think about the residents of Jerusalem. And I, 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 I picture in my mind Sennacherib's army just, just sort of gathered there in this posture of war outside of their walls, taunting them and mocking them. And I think about what the Lord said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4 when He says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. 
and its desire is for you. Or you could say, its desire is contrary to you. It's crouching at the door. By the way, did you know that Sennacherib's name literally means sin? He was named after a pagan god whose name was Sin. So for the Israelites, they could literally say, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is against us. And I think, how often do I feel that way? How often do we feel that way too? Sin is crouching at the door of our life. And it taunts us with our guilt, our foolishness. It tells us to trust in God at this time would be to trust in vain. Who could save us from the woes and the dangers and the trials and the tribulations of this life? And when we hear that and we we begin to believe that, even for a moment, our hearts fail and our knees start to shake, right? And it's at that moment that the Word of God comes to us and says this, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect weakness and so Paul who heard that says therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me Jesus meets us in our weaknesses but here's the thing he's not weak he meets us in our weaknesses but he is not weak Look at the rest of the verse there in verse 2. He is the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from ancient days. This one who meets me in my weakness is none other than the almighty, eternal God Himself. He will come as a baby, however. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. There's a waiting. And then he's going to come, but he's going to come as a baby. He's going to come because a woman's going to give birth to him. Why a baby? Why a baby? Because then he can not only meet us in our weakness in a way that no one can boast, but also he can live among us. He can live the life we needed him to live in order to save us in a way that no one could boast. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 2 Corinthians 13, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but we will live with Him by the power of God. He's got to come in weakness so He can live the weak lives we live 
and die the weak death we deserved. But as the eternal, almighty God, He will resurrect and conquer the grave we could not. So have full confidence in this great truth this morning, Christian. Have full confidence in this. Jesus will meet you in your weakness. But He will care for you in His strength. And that's the last point. He cares for us in His strength. Look down at verses 4 and 5. And He shall stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Look what Jesus will do for us as revealed in these verses. First, he will stand. He will stand. That is a position of action. That is a position of strength. He won't be passive He's not just sort of going to lay around, right? He is standing at the ready, always ready, always alert, working for those who trust Him as their shepherd. He will stand for us. Secondly, He will shepherd His flock. He's not going to leave us to our own devices. He's not going to leave us unprotected or vulnerable. He will lead us to green pastures He will lead us beside still waters as good shepherds do. That's what good shepherds do. Psalm 23, right? There will be no need that you have that is unmet in Him. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every need. Every desire, every want. No, no, no. Every need. Because He's a good shepherd. Thirdly, He will care for us in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. And I want to just ask this question. Do you comprehend the strength of the Lord? Right? He will lead you in the strength and majesty of the Lord. Do you comprehend that strength? I don't think I comprehend that often enough. How strong is God? Do you know why Sennacherib and his army did not conquer Jerusalem that night? There's a reason. They were on a roll. They were mowing down 40-some other cities and villages along the way. They came right up to the door. They're knocking. They're saying, we're coming in. Why didn't they that night? In fact, why didn't they ever Because Hezekiah, shaking, scared, prayed. He prayed. And he said, God, do you hear this? God, can you stop this? God, are your promises to us legitimate? Will you do something? Will you save us? Will you deliver us? And this unstoppable army in the middle of the night, we're not told exactly what happened. All that we're told is that God visited upon them and 185,000 soldiers died. So Sennacherib wakes up in the next morning and he looks around and he sees dead bodies in his army all around him. And he turned around and he left. 
and he didn't come back. Do you comprehend the strength of the Lord? Jesus will stand and shepherd us in that strength. It's an all-powerful strength. So if you're trusting in Him, just know that unmatched strength is on your side, so walk behind Him like a trusting sheep. Walks behind a shepherd, knowing that shepherd ain't going to lose. And fourth, notice that He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Our security in Christ will not be threatened by earthly power. Our security in Christ will not be threatened by any power. Our security in Christ can't be thwarted by a trial, can't be thwarted by a disease, can't be thwarted by a political situation of unrest, can't be thwarted by war, can't be thwarted by anything. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Him Lord. The whole earth will be filled with His glory. You have a hope in an unshakable reality. Do you think God is delaying in your life? Do you think, oh, all, all of these things, they, they just they sound encouraging and they, they sound so promising and I want to I hold on to that, but, but I feel like, again, He's delaying in my life. Can I just encourage you with this? Delays in this life that look like delays of God are not delays. They're not delays. With God, a, a thousand years is like a day. Right? He's not slow to keep His promises. He will keep His promises. He, he will securely keep you. He will accomplish all of His purposes in your life. And as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, that may include, and it will include, trial, persecution, tribulation, consequences for your sin. I mean, all those things. Again, God works in those and through those. He meets you, though, in those weaknesses, and He reminds you that Jesus died in that weakness to pay your debt, to secure your future, there are delays that we, we sense are delays, but in the economy of God, there are no delays. God is doing exactly what He intends to do for your good and His glory. So trust Him. And I think that's what the last part of the verse then means. Finally, He will be our peace. If you're looking for peace, look to Christ. Look to Christ. He sees you in your weakness. He meets you in your weakness. But He will always and forever care for you in His strength.